Perverted. Brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hello everyone and welcome to the Afroverde podcast where I bring you the latest insights and analyses on African and global events. As the end of 2023 draws nearer with every day, I would like to go over BRICS's activity during the year, specifically the BRICS bank, BRICS expansion, as well as an outlook into 2024 as Russia prepares to take over the chairmanship from South Africa. I'm your host Victor Anakin and today I'm excited to be joined by Professor Patrick Bond, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Social Change, University of Johannesburg in South Africa. He's well known for his work, Elite Transition from Apartheid to Neoliberalism in South Africa. Professor Bond has also published several books, which I totally recommend you to read. For example, Against Global Apartheid, Talk Left, Walk Right, Looting Africa, among many others. He's an expert in economic, social and environmental policy, as well as social transformations and climate change. Well, that said, let's get right to it. Professor Bond, thank you for joining me on the Afroverde podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. BRICS was engaged in a number of events this year and 2023 on its own was quite a, a year full of interesting events, let's call it that. So let's start with the most obvious and significant, the expansion of BRICS. So the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt and Argentina were the countries that were invited to join as of uh, January the 1st, 2024. Could you quickly remind our listeners why each of those countries was most likely chosen? Well, it's great to be with you, Victor, and uh, it's amazing to discuss how this body BRICS, which uh, for 15 years has been limited to five groups with various ups and downs, especially because there have been some right-wing uh, politicians who have not always acted in the interests of BRICS, including in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro uh, from 2019 to 2022. And um, the debate about how BRICS can become more influential needs to include something more decisive about the coherence of the new BRICS members. And that is still to come. Maybe it will be the subject in 2024 uh, as uh, Vladimir Putin hosts the BRICS in Kazan. In the meantime, the expansion in 2023 was um, chaotic. And one reason is that the most important new member would have been Argentina, because Lula da Silva, the Brazilian president, wanted to send a signal to the Argentine people that they shouldn't only look to the United States and to potentially a sort of Western and international monetary fund financial arrangement as they go deep into an economic crisis. They should instead look uh, to uh, the East and especially to China and to the BRICS. And the Argentine leadership was trying to do that before the election uh, last month and, and the ability of a, of a new far-right um, president, uh, Malay, to actually uh, dollarize instead of de-dollarize and to reject the invitation to join the BRICS. And that was soon followed by the Chinese withdrawing a $6.5 billion credit line. And for Lula da Silva, who really wanted Argentina, this is a terrible disappointment that the Argentine electorate in November brought in uh, Malay. And the dilemma for the rest of the new BRICS is that it appears a much less stable arrangement. And in my discussions with the BRICS Bank Vice President, Leslie Mastorp, a couple of weeks ago, there were some important questions as to whether some of the new BRICS members who are meant to have full 
membership qualifications, including BRICS Bank membership, would in, uh, be uh, invited. So the next of the controversial BRICS members, Ethiopia, went bankrupt in recent days. Um, partly, they have large Chinese loans, some of which have been forgiven and, and uh, uh, delayed. But the Western lenders now are trying to, to grab assets. And this is a big problem for anyone in Africa thinking that if you take the route Ethiopia did, which is like a Chinese um, export-oriented manufacturing strategy, then you can get out of the dependency of raw uh, material extraction and export because Ethiopia has quite a few sweatshops. However, they never managed to bring it above 6% manufacturing to GDP. It's still a, a rural country, um, a peasant country. And um, so for them to join the BRICS, as um, the uh, largest in terms of population in Africa and uh, Egypt, uh, second largest after Nigeria, and Egypt, um, also a very large uh, uh, country in terms of population, and sometimes rated number one economy in terms of its output. There was, uh, again, a question of the logic of Ethiopia. For Egypt and the other two pro-Western uh, Middle Eastern countries, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, this is a very important moment to pull them out of the Western orbit. And because of Israel's genocide in Gaza, the possibility that Egypt could then do something much more decisive to support the Palestinians, um, along with Saudi Arabia, along with uh, UAE, who have been very, very close with Egypt, first uh, uh, making links to Israel uh, in the 1980s, and then um, the UAE actually signing the Abram Accords to normalize relationships with uh, Israel in 2021, and the Saudis about to do so before Hamas's October 7 attack on Israel. Now, all of this uh, is yet more complicated because the final new member of the BRICS is Iran. Now, what do uh, those latter countries have in common? Iran certainly has been seen as a sponsor of Hamas and very supportive of Yemen, which is now bombing uh, Israel and uh, taking captive some of the ships that they see are Israel-linked coming through the Suez Canal and uh, the Red Sea causing tremendous chaos in world shipping since 12% of, of uh, ships and a higher percentage of container ships go through that Suez Canal. And now they're being rerouted through to um, the Horn of uh, Africa and to South Africa, to the Cape, and then on to Europe. Now that means we've got an extraordinary situation of geopolitical tension where one side, Iran, is uh, very much uh, the backer uh, along with uh, Qatar of Hamas. But secondly, on the pro-US and pro-Israeli side, we still see Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the UAE um, in an extraordinary conflict that the BRICS tried to have a meeting about um, in November, but they failed to come to any conclusion around. So to sum it up, these geopolitical relationships are fraught with contradictions. And the underlying potential for using Saudi Arabia to help break the US dollar dominance since in early 2023, the Petro Yuan was established. That is, uh, that Saudi Arabia would sell oil to China but do so without the US dollar intermediary, something I think the, the whole world would want to see 
much more of less reliance upon the dollar. And in that respect, what we've got really is a um, enormous potential, but difficulty in realization of the BRICS as a solid new growing block. And much will depend on which new countries uh, might enter in Kazan. Prof, thanks a lot for that genuinely wonderful introduction to and giving a lot of background to our listeners. South Africa was the chair of the BRICS for 2023 as the year wraps up. How would you assess South Africa's work that it has done, uh, in particular its Sherpa, Neil Suklal, who organized conversations, established contact with over 20 countries that it applied, and then, you know, the whole process of selecting, well, the to-be six countries at that moment anyways? Yes, the, the difficulty that South Africa had was obviously the International Criminal Court, uh, which had said that if Vladimir Putin comes to Johannesburg in August 2023, he would have to be arrested, in turn causing uh, what would have been a constitutional crisis between the executive, which wanted Putin to come, and the judiciary, which has uh, strong independence and would have uh, no doubt pushed through the arrest warrant and created this amazing tension. We've, we've seen this once before in 2015, when al-Bashir, the head of Sudan, was on an ICC warrant, and he had to very quickly escape before the judges were able to activate the police to have him arrested. Now, um, there should be, obviously, in the ICC balance, and there's not. And the difficulty of getting Benjamin Netanyahu, the head of Israel, who is engaged in genocide before the ICC. The Palestinians have tried this for for uh, uh, more than a dozen years, is one example of the ICC's bias. But there were other incidents in which the U.S. was bullying the South African foreign ministry, for example, over whether a Russian ship that came to Cape Town in December 2022, the Lady R., was dropping off AK-47s or was picking up arms that allegedly South Africa could provide um, for Russian use in Ukraine. And those were controversies along with the Russian uh, naval exercises alongside China and South Africa, which is a standard process within the BRICS and the military and naval cooperation. That also in February of 2023 was a was a strong uh, signal to the West that bullying was necessary. And the bullying represented usually um, uh, not just um, what they call uh, loudspeaker or loudhaler diplomacy, that is very strong condemnation from the U.S. ambassador to South Africa, which then resulted in that ambassador, Ruben Bergetti, being ridiculed because he could come up with no proof that the Lady R had taken on South African military. There was an investigation and no such uh, transfer was, was found. But secondly, that the dilemma of U.S. trade and the South African uh, reliance upon the uh, U.S. for major exports of steel and aluminium automobiles, those were also very important parts of the debate in uh, uh, 2023, because the African Growth and Opportunity Act may not be renewed for South Africa. And as a result, it may be that we see a uh, decline in exports to the West. Now, many of us would welcome that decline because much of the export activity to the United States and to Europe involves high energy intensive abuse of South Africa's coal-fired power. And that means we import bauxite from Australia, 
we zap it with coal-fired power, and then we export it um, usually to Western, uh, partly to some uh, Eastern buyers as well. And that's a very, very dubious use of our electricity when we have terrible energy shortages. 300 out of 365 days of 2023 we had load shedding or cuts, power cuts. And that meant that the big companies that can use and abuse that electricity, often getting it at about one eighth of the price of ordinary people, their use of electricity means our labor intensive industries, our small businesses and our households, especially where women are doing much of the cooking because of patriarchy. All of those were disadvantaged. So I think we have this amazing opportunity now, especially with the climate catastrophe bearing down, uh, even in the last week, we had uh, 17 deaths in a, uh, a rain bomb in one part of the country, uh, Ladysmith, and we've had other incidents of this sort, just as Russia's had uh, burning of the Siberian forests and uh, other climate uh, incidents. And as a result, what we see in uh, the, um, let's say, uh, um, climate debate is a need to change away from our high energy intensive uh, economic activity. And the fight with the United States and now with Europe through their new climate sanctions, which take effect in 2026, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. What these do is to um, work with the local climate activists and community activists and fisher folk who don't want to see offshore gas and oil drilling. So top down climate sanctions from the West, bottom up the uh, activists. And we may in that process have a chance to restructure the economy through something more coherent. We can't say that the BRICS is the reason because in the United Nations Climate Summit, the BRICS, especially what's called BASIC, Brazil, South Africa, India, China, lobbied very hard against these climate sanctions. But this is where our activity in the next few years will have to be much more attuned, that is, as the BRICS take on more oil-dependent countries like Iran, UAE, uh, Egypt, and especially Saudi Arabia, and Argentina would have been as well, then we see a possibility of a very carbon-intensive block that slows down our humanity's needed progress on cutting emissions. Because the um, uh, move from the UAE to Azerbaijan for the next climate summit will probably confirm that major oil interests will remain quite important since Azerbaijan is the oldest site where oil has been uh, extracted in the world. And these are the sorts of things that make the BRICS contradictory. Sometimes they push forward towards a more progressive world, such as by threatening de-dollarization. But sometimes by slowing down decarbonization, we see the BRICS as a more reactionary block. It just depends on the contingencies of which issues and which interests are at stake. Very interesting insight into, like you said, these uh, contradictions, which I guess any organization does have depending on their, you know, their interest at that current specific period of time. In 2024, well, I guess we can definitely expect a total of three African countries in BRICS. Tell us how can this possibly contribute to the African continent's development? 
It's so critical that we see um, the African continent move uh, more coherently because we're going to have a free trade block within Africa, which means the division of the continent, which was done by Western colonial powers in 1885 in Berlin, all of these 54 uh, countries with their irrational borders, they can uh, become less fragmented and have more economies of scale as a trade block. And um, the beginning three, South Africa, uh, Ethiopia and Egypt, um, hopefully will be followed by many others joining BRICS and the logical ones in 2024 would be the biggest uh, in economy and population, Nigeria, uh, as well as the main Francophone uh, country in uh, West Africa, uh, which is Senegal. Now in West Africa, there are many coup governments and they have a new federation. We'll see whether the BRICS play any role, partly because hosted by Russia, the Wagner Group, um, may have some uh, influence in some of those different governments. But the most important problem is whether the African Union steps forward as they did in September in the G20, and that was hosted by BRICS member India. Narendra Modi had promised that the African voices would be louder. There's only one African country in the G20. The G20 will be hosted in Brazil this year and in South Africa next year. And this sets up a potential, let's say, competition to draw in African countries. Most of these African countries, since there are 54, have had extreme lobbying, and that includes over whether or not to support um, uh, the uh, Russian uh, uh, stance in relation to Ukraine, but also uh, Israel in relation to um, its uh, genocide of Gaza. And most African countries are now allied with uh, um, the, the Palestinians, but there was a period when the African Union until um, recently had allowed Israel to become an observer state. And that was a big controversy that South Africa was able to push away. So I think although one would want to see more um, open discussions of trade relations, especially because um, Egypt has this crucial role with the Suez Canal um, and the Ethiopian uh, government has put an enormous effort into um, the relations with China, especially setting up a new railroad that goes from the port of Djibouti, where China has a, has a military base, to Addis Ababa. And that rail line has been important for the export of these uh, what are sometimes called sweatshop uh, factories, these uh, relatively labor-intensive factories in Ethiopia. Um, and then South Africa's trade unfortunately still has the same characteristics with uh, the BRICS as uh, we've seen even uh, Russia with its uh, emphasis on export of oil and gas. In our case, it's minerals, it's platinum, gold, um, manganese, iron ore, and coal. And most of the BRICS that are importing from South Africa are taking uh, these raw materials, and then China especially sends back finished goods. So we haven't yet broken out of the traditional neo-colonial trade relationships. And the BRICS in some ways have locked into what the uh, old colonial power set up with their ports and their railroads and their bridges and their roads that go out to the mines and the plantations. And we have seen, unfortunately, much of what the BRICS trade relationship represents an amplification, not an amelioration of those relations. So I hope in the future, the more African countries connect to BRICS, but also the more that Africa can speak as one with a single common market 
That relationship can be adjusted because it's currently leading to net negative wealth since these raw materials are being extracted, the depletion of our natural capital in Africa, which isn't particularly well compensated, whether by Western or BRICS companies. If China can do more to industrialize, that relationship would be much more um, appropriately balanced. And that's what we thought Ethiopia had represented. That is, that there would be more factories producing manufactured goods. But as I say, the Ethiopians only got up to uh, between uh, 3% of uh, their GDP coming out of manufacturing before the Chinese investments, only reaching 6%. And now it's leveled back down to 4%. Now, that means that there are some limits if we're trying to simply set up export industries um, of the sort Ethiopia did. And what I would be more optimistic about would be a common market where uh, Africa could break down those divided, uh, bordered um, economies and become one economy with more economies of scale for the local production of, you know, fairly rudimentary manufactured good pots and pans and clothing and textiles and appliances and um, electronic goods that could be done in the continent. South Africa has a bit of an advantage since we were up to 24% of our GDP was manufacturing at the time of uh, liberation in 1994, but it has gone down largely because of Chinese imports down to 12%. So it's, it's that rebuilding and taking advantage of all the new potential capacity internal to Africa that would give me some more optimism. Great. Thanks, Prof. I'm not sure if you've been following the Russian foreign minister's statements, but uh, he said earlier this year that about three dozen countries are eager to get closer to BRICS and establish some sort of partnership with the group. What is your explanation for this increased interest? towards BRICS? Well, of course, the uh, relationships that evolved after uh, 2022 has sent a signal to every uh, government. If you've got money in the West, it might be grabbed, it might be stolen. The sanctions against Russia included SWIFT, the interbank system. And so most of what I understand is, is uh, the international trade that has relied on using the dollar for middleman status because of its traditional stability. Until 1971, it was linked to gold. That was a relationship set up because in South Africa, we had half the world's gold in 1944. So South Africa joined with the US. That was white apartheid, uh, becoming an apartheid uh, state. And uh, the US had uh, the other half of the Western world's gold in its Fort Knox. So there was a material interest in linking the dollar to gold um, in 1944 under the Bretton Woods. But, you know, after that uh, fell apart in 1971, when the then US President Nixon defaulted on what was a bit $80 billion uh, obligation, and he said, we won't pay. $35. Uh, we won't give you an ounce of gold if you bring us $35. When that broke down, we've seen terrible um, volatility in world finance. Even in early 2023, uh, two of the three worst bankruptcies in US history occurred. Uh, Credit Suisse in uh, Switzerland went bankrupt. Um, the uh, tightening of interest rates in the United States by the Federal Reserve, um, all of these represented uh, current volatility created, as we saw in 2008, by, uh, let me call it, irresponsible United States financial uh, and monetary and currency policy. And it's very obvious, I think, to everyone who looks at it, that the US dollar 
shouldn't be so hegemonic. It gives the U.S. the ability to print dollars. The term for this is quantitative easing. The British, the Europeans, the Japanese did it as well in 2008, 9, 10, 11, and then again in 2000 and 2020 with COVID. But this printing of money is um, very much to the benefit of the Western banks, and uh, they therefore don't go bankrupt. They can have artificially low interest rates, they can have uh, more uh, deregulatory processes from the US Federal Reserve, and all of these are the reasons for de-dollarization. The most advanced country in the BRICS promoting de-dollarization obviously would be Russia because it has the most to gain if there is an alternative to the swift US dollar trading system. But I think the, the rest of the world knows that. And especially if uh, one's a dictator and you know one day the US favors you, as was the case with uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, but then the next day, Joe Biden in his campaign in 2020 said, we're going to make Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman a pariah for the reason that uh, a, a Washington Post journalist um, was uh, executed under Mohammed bin Salman's instructions um, in 2018. Because of this, let me call it frivolity in which US geopolitical interests go back and forth and all around, the need is to, I think, have something other than a US dollar, which the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen showed would be used in a very, let's say, um, uh, I wouldn't say illogical or irrational, but a certain logic to putting sanctions on Russia if you're from the West. But on the other hand, it showed the whole world, you better not trust the United States with your money. You better have some other way to keep your international assets safe from being grabbed uh, for whatever reason might occur. Iran went through this, of course, as well. Other countries have gone through U.S. sanctions or you know, snatches of gold, like Venezuela. And it really is important to have some alternative to Federal Reserve uh, let's say, uh, mismanagement of the world economy to the US dollar, which has this centrality because of a deal set up in 1944 with South Africa's help at the time that was related to gold. And we should be finding some other route. And it was a tragedy here in Johannesburg that we failed to do so. And many in Russia, I think, have become justifiably frustrated that the BRICS is very, very slow, largely because our finance ministries and our central banks have very pro-Western ideologies within them. They are trading with uh, Western uh, countries. They have Western banks. They have a, a circulation. Many of our top people in our treasury and our finance ministry, our, our central bank, have a revolving door with big Western banks. Uh, and that includes uh, the two prior central bank governors. And they were in and out of uh, banks like um, uh, uh, our, our local banks, uh, some of the biggest ones like ABSA, um, but also Goldman Sachs. Um, and these are the sorts of, let's say, relationships within not just uh, South Africa, but also India and uh, uh, Brazil that make it very hard to de-dollarize because within the BRICS, there's uh, a neoliberal block within our economic uh, uh, functionaries who look to the West for their support. And we saw that when the BRICS bank itself put sanctions on uh, Russia in March uh, 2022, uh, along with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. But for the BRICS bank, it was especially uh, tragic in a way that there was no, let's say, thoughtful uh, approach to what uh, its role would be. It simply looked to the uh, United States 
credit rating agencies, Fitch, Moody's, and Standard & Poor's, because those three credit rating agencies determine whether the BRICS bank can borrow at a relatively lower interest rate. And if the BRICS bank is then given downgrades, which is what happened in July because of the 6.7% exposure to Russia, even though the Russia holds about 19% of the, of the capital, the ownership of the BRICS bank, it was subject to sanctions because the BRICS Bank officials were looking to the Western credit rating agencies. And these are the sorts of reasons why we need very urgently alternatives to Western financial power, whether it's a BRICS Bank, a contingent reserve arrangement, which was meant to be the alternative to the International Monetary Fund, or um, new credit rating agencies, a new trading currency, much better bilateral currencies. All of these are long overdue. And I think the world is is hoping that in uh, the Russian meeting in uh, 2024, more progress is apparent because we saw uh, in Johannesburg steps backward from that commitment. Prof, let's talk about the BRICS Bank then. Dilma Rousseff has been leading the BRICS Bank this year. Can you explain to our listeners how does the BRICS Bank differ from the World Bank, for example? Well, the BRICS Bank, um, unfortunately, doesn't present that much of an alternative. Uh, as I was discussing with its vice president a couple of weeks ago, they see themselves as accompanying, not really being different. And that means they don't really have in place sufficient staff to do, let's say, a more genuine uh, banking, uh, let's say, that would be locally oriented, more sensitive to uh, local ecology, even though they claim to be a more green bank, and also to local people. They don't do consultation. They don't even go through the efforts that the World Bank does. What is interesting is the potential that Dilma Rousseff has recognized that instead of lending in dollars, which is where they were set up, don't forget in 2014, Dilma Rousseff was the president of Brazil and hosted the Fortaleza BRICS Summit, where the BRICS Bank and the contingent reserve arrangement were established. But unfortunately, as I said, the conservative forces in the BRICS, in the finance ministries and central banks, they said, look, we, we can make our bank, uh, a BRICS Bank, more effective if it's dollar-based. And unfortunately, even though there was some awareness that if you lend in dollars, you need to be repaid in dollars. And if your currency falls, as uh, you know, the ruble has, the rand has, uh, the uh, uh, Brazilian real, uh, three of the, the the five BRICS currencies tend to fall. The other two, India, uh, India's um, rupee and the Chinese renminbi, have been rising. Um, but if you're lending in dollars to countries like Russia, South Africa, and Brazil, and then you need to be repaid in dollars, the effective interest rate is much higher if your currency has fallen. And that means we should be pushing much more towards local fundraising. South Africa has a very liquid financial market, lots of money in our Johannesburg Stock Exchange, swirling around in a casino. It's what's called the um, the Buffett indicator, named after Warren Buffett in the US, to measure the uh, size of the stock market by its capitalization over the GDP. And that ratio is highest in the world, uh, traditionally uh, here in South Africa, over 330%. What it means is we've got lots of money in RAND, and we should be having a BRICS bank drawing on that financial market and then lending onwards for development projects. Unfortunately, though, only 23% of the BRICS bank 
currently is locally denominated. That is, the currencies can be um, bought and sold uh, uh, locally without the intermediation of a hard currency, a dollar, a euro, a yen, or a pound. Now, the hard currencies, uh, unfortunately, predominate with 77%. Dilma uh, has committed to changing that uh, by 2030 to 30% local currency. And many of us think that's way too little, way too late. She will be replaced in 2025 because there's a circulation. Uh, it'll be a Russian who takes over at that point. But we're hoping that um, because she and certainly her president now, Lula, uh, and they've had a very, very close relationship for, for decades um, in uh, the Workers' Party, uh, that they will actually try to speed up that process of local currency lending. And also, I think, in changing the way the BRICS Bank does business. So it's not like a little mini-me of the World Bank. Yeah. And as Wilma Rousseff is about to end her term, how do you summarize her leadership? Well, it's very new. And um, what we definitely needed from the BRICS Bank was somebody like Dilma and who moved in, because uh, don't forget that between 2019 and 2022, the Brazilian leader uh, was Jair Bolsonaro, and he populated the BRICS Bank with reactionaries. So they needed to clear out the Bolsonaro types. Um, what we haven't seen yet from Brazil is a major step forward. Uh, and the reason is that Lula has a very, he defeated uh, um, uh, Bolsonaro by a small margin uh, in uh, late 2022. He entered in early 2023, was immediately confronted with a near coup attempt uh, in uh, the capital of Brasilia. Um, and he's had to stitch together a coalition of anti-Bolsonaro forces that include big business and neoliberals. So we haven't yet seen beyond rhetoric the ability of Lula to really push a different agenda. The old Workers' Party agenda into the world, it might change because in 2024, he hosts the G20. And in 2025, most importantly, to save the planet from a climate catastrophe, he will host the United Nations Climate Summit. And he's using a, uh, an Amazonian forest city called Belen to do that hosting. So there may be a change in the mood or in the balance of forces for climate at that point. But in the meantime, it seems that Lula isn't always his own master. And he's dealing next door uh, with Javier Millet, the new Argentine president, with the sort of Bolsonaro force that is the reactionary, libertarian, uh, anti-science, climate denialist kind of politics. And it, uh, the contradictions in Latin America are so acute because in Chile, a left-wing president was elected but couldn't move very far because of the local balance of forces. The same is true in Colombia, a very good president who cannot move very far. Uh, the Venezuelans are still under a siege economy. The Mexicans have a center-left government. And there may be some, let's call it a new pink tide that can continue. Uh, but the Ecuadorians just had a setback in their election. And in other parts of Latin America, Peru, where the left had been in power briefly, we've seen uh, instability. And I think the dilemma is that the world requires a push from progressives, uh, including those 
in governments because even the World Economic Forum, the reactionary big business network in Switzerland, they are even willing to admit there is a poly crisis, a multiple overlocking, uh, interlocking, overlapping set of problems, uh, whether it's pandemic management during COVID or extreme inequality and extreme financial turbulence and geopolitical tensions and um, the dilemmas that, let's say, we would hope a BRICS would offer genuine alternatives to. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that. And just one, one or two examples, the BRICS couldn't even agree to get the COVID-19 vaccines, which include the Sputnik, right? A very important contribution. Uh, China had Sinovac and Sinopharm. And um, the West had their mRNA vaccines. And we couldn't get them into the sphere of what's called a global public good, even though two BRICS countries, South Africa and India, their presidents, Ramaphosa here and Narendra Modi, requested that the World Trade Organization from 2020 to 2022, continually requesting that intellectual property on these important vaccines be waived. And we couldn't get unity within the BRICS because of these different interests, and especially Kair Bolsonaro siding with Western big pharma corps and the German and British governments, especially being saboteurs of global public goods. And a second reason that we would worry that this, uh, let's say 2024 might not be a good year for the BRICS is that the two most populous countries, um, India and South and uh, China, are still fighting. They're fighting in the Himalayas. They're fighting over corporate power. They're fighting over currencies. They're fighting over um, um, trade relationships. Um, the Indian government has signed up in what's called a quad in a uh, unification with the Japanese and Australian and US armies, um, and they're working with the Brits. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very messy geopolitical situation within the BRICS. So I think the world would want those contradictions, the China-India conflict to settle down because China is also uh, in a, an extremely tense situation where U.S. aggression in uh, the uh, Pacific is very explicit, especially with uh, Taiwan being a contested site and the South China Sea uh, with Chinese uh, expansion and building of artificial islands. But it's all over the Belt and Road where the U.S. was more or less pushed out of Argent uh, Afghanistan and where uh, conflicts, uh, particularly because of the political turmoil in Pakistan and the hatred of India, uh, of Pakistan and the contested uh, border area, uh, the Kashmir, where China also has interest because of the uh, Chinese-Pakistani economic corridor, which would cut off an enormous amount of not only geographical distance, but also uh, vulnerabilities in uh, the uh, uh, Malaysian and uh, Indonesian straits for the shipment of oil to China. If it could instead uh, be directed through the Gadar port in Pakistan. And there's also a, a very important potential between Iran uh, and Russia for a new north-south trade route, which has uh, only existed in ancient times. So as the Belt and Road comes under all sorts of geopolitical pressures and debt repayment pressures, uh, it's more and more crucial that China and India settle its conflicts. But a second is between uh, India and Russia, because India imports so much energy inexpensively from Russia, but doesn't have export goods for Russia. So therefore, uh, Russian energy exporters 
have a great deal of money tied up in the rupee in India that they cannot convert to the ruble. And that's why getting some relationships that set up BRICS interbank uh, transfers that don't involve the dollar will be increasingly crucial. And we're hoping, obviously, that uh, Russia's hosting of the BRICS will achieve that. Thanks, Prof. Another thing I want to actually ask you is about the BRICS as an association itself. And Russia's foreign minister also highlighted this recently, saying that BRICS, you know, at the current moment should not be reformed from an association of countries into a full-fledged organization uh, with a permanent secretariat. Is there any advantages this, first of all? And then do you agree with Russia's foreign minister when he says that BRICS is a future umbrella over regional and sub-regional processes. And how how should this group develop further, in your opinion? Yes, I, I take the position that uh, the potential of BRICS has not been realized, that the potential, especially to challenge Western-dominated multilateralism, uh, is not yet evident, partly because the delegates that the BRICS countries send to the World Bank and the IMF, to the WTO, um, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, are not really interested in doing anything different. They basically have gone along with the re-election of a United States-nominated uh, World Bank president and a European Union-nominated uh, International Monetary Fund managing director since the very beginning of BRICS. And those include a sign of Phobe, uh, climate denialist Trump appointee David Malpass at the World Bank and um, continual reappointments to the International Monetary Fund of men and women who turn out to be uh, corrupt or ethically challenged, each one of them uh, dating to the late 2000s. Now, if uh, the IMF and World Bank have not changed their basic economic philosophy, even though the BRICS have put in much more money in 2015, for example, at the IMF, there was a major recapitalization and uh, China increased its share by 37% and uh, India by 23% and Russia by uh, 8%, uh, uh, Brazil by 11%. Those increases in uh, voting share, in voice at the IMF didn't result in any changes, whether to the very top leadership or to the philosophy. And I think it's in that way that uh, the BRICS should be thinking of having more discipline, more coherence, more, um, let's say, uh, ability to work together to change multilateralism, which is Western-dominated and therefore a big corporate-dominated. And I think the dilemma is that in some of these cases, like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, many of the leading BRICS corporations from South Africa, from uh, Brazil, from uh, Russia, are fossil fuel industries, and therefore their interest in fighting the West is not very great compared to joining the West. And that's why in some of these cases, the term sub-imperialism, in other words, not fighting against Western imperialism, but working within it, becomes appropriate. In terms of the strength, is there anything that basically makes BRICS a unique phenomenon? For example, how does it differ from other existing associations of countries? I mean, economic blocs, military, political alliances, etc. Well, the very origins of BRICS include uh, a man called Jim O'Neill, the uh, Goldman Sachs uh, investment banker, who said that uh, the BRICS are the building BRICS of the 21st century because they're the big emerging markets, the middle economies that can expand and grow. And he, he wrote that in 2001, 
And in uh, Ekaterinburg, the first BRICS meeting occurred a, a few years later, and South Africa was added in um, 2010. Now, the problem is that what looked strong uh, in the 2000s, um, especially as China, with the World Trade Organization membership, expanded its manufacturing, and as Russia got back um, its uh, energy sovereignty after the terrible years of, of Yeltsin and uh, Western domination, um, as India emerged in the world market, as the Brazilians had uh, President Lula and then President Rousseff uh, until she was impeached in 2016. In that period, there was enormous hope, and it was especially obvious in 2008 when the BRICS uh, survived thanks mainly to China's increased investment and consumption, the world financial crash. The problem is that the 2010s had offered all of this hope uh, for the BRICS, but not much of uh, an accomplishment in the areas that I've discussed, such as changing multilateralism or setting up alternative institutions or um, getting new currency arrangements or other ways to increase trade and have less reliance on the dollar. And one reason is that in 2014, we saw the end of the first big commodity super cycle, which had raised several of the BRICS, South Africa, Brazil, and and, uh, and Russia, because of the strong uh, uh, import, uh, uh, export of their petroleum and um, uh, gas, and uh, in our case, minerals. And the problem is when you have a decline in those uh, export prices for raw materials, uh, especially the oil uh, and gas and, and minerals, then the currencies go down. And so to do uh, three of the five BRICS economies. And so that lack of coherence, the lack of, um, let's say, connectivities between the BRICS, uh, the decline in the world trade to GDP, that is a deglobalization period starting in 2008, um, after a long period of rising trade to GDP. All of these worked against the BRICS having the kind of power that even someone like uh, Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs predicted, and he was never very uh, convinced South Africa uh, needed to be in the BRICS because it's a weak economy. Uh, we haven't had uh, particularly strong governance. We have the, the most corrupt corporations in the world, according to PwC surveys. And in all those regards, we didn't really belong here in South Africa within the BRICS, except symbolically representing the African continent. Now, could a different 2020s and going forward into the 2030s, where there would be more balance, um, less, let's say, wild and crazy globalization and more thoughtful global value chains, less subject to interruption, for example, as we have today in the Red Sea, where uh, ships are, are being um, disrupted. Uh, and that, those are the questions for the BRICS to become uh, less of a symbolic meeting every year with strong statements, but not much action and instead actually set up uh, something that's more coherent than what the wild and Western neoliberal pro-corporate system has given us. The crucial test would be, I think, in the climate sphere, where we haven't seen much progress from the BRICS, maybe even regress, but also in world finance, where de-dollarization, I hope, will make some progress this year. Because if Russia can't do it, I'm not expecting any of the other uh, subsequent chairs of the BRICS to have such a strong interest in challenging uh, Western, uh, especially dollar power.
Of course, of course, no, I totally agree with you on that. Prof, I know we've spoken about Javier Millet's beginning of his presidential period. And obviously now Argentina is uh, in a very interesting position since, you know, Millet isn't the biggest fan of BRICS. How do you think his government will interact with BRICS in the coming year? Well, it's been obvious from just the first few weeks that Javier Millet is um, anti Uh, Chinese and anti-BRICS, and he is aligning himself, even calling for uh, the Argentine peso to be replaced with the dollar. He's aligning himself with Washington. The problem is that won't necessarily help him uh, because Washington doesn't have much to offer, especially because the International Monetary Fund will be squeezing as hard as it can in Argentina because it's made its biggest loans in recent years there. And the Argentine economy is very sick, unable to export the way it had in the early 2000s. Now, don't forget, Argentina had defaulted before in 2001. They went through four presidents in a couple of weeks. Um, They then began to be much more self-reliant. And during the first period, the first decade of the 2000s, we saw Argentina grow faster than any other Latin American economy because it wasn't dollar dependent. It was able to trade and have a small surplus and therefore didn't need um, to have long-term foreign investment and um, uh, long-term dollar lending. Um, Instead, it used its local resources and balanced out. They had what we call a Keynesian government at that time. And that was replaced because it ultimately ran out of steam uh, this last year. And what we're only seeing is, as I think, the sort of resistance. It's not necessarily the pressure from BRICS, especially from Xi Jinping, who has personally written to Javier Millet to say, no, no, join us in BRICS, and then has pulled a short-term credit line, which might be very important. And that may not be sufficient. Instead, what I would see is more important is the upsurge of protest. And it started shortly after Millet took power. And it's mainly now uh, occurring along the lines Argentines really know how to protest. They'll block streets in spite of Millet's threat that if you block a road and you're caught, you're going to lose your state pensions, your grants, your your subsidies. So the Argentine people have to rise up in uh, even greater strengths as their social programs are cut, as their economy shrinks, as their peso devalued already this this month by 50% against the dollar, as inflation already in triple digits gets worse. And I think it's those uprisings that we've seen in Argentina and many countries, including BRICS countries, really serve as a sort of reminder that the elites can't go ahead and do what they want, including Malay trying to tie himself too closely to Washington, to the IMF, um, without resistance. Great, Prof. Thanks a lot. How do you think will Argentina get affected by distancing itself from the global south effectively, you know, since it's distancing itself from BRICS, which is pretty much a representative of the global south? I mean, the main thing about Argentina is that it has so much potential if it would work within Mercosur and do as it did back in uh, 2001, default on illegitimate debt. At that time, it was, uh, I believe it was $120 billion of foreign debt it couldn't pay. But what the West did was to seize Argentine assets, uh, overseas uh, embassies and, and airlines and ships, and they were, the West was becoming very tough. But Argentina persevered and had an internal strategy that was assisted by the PT 
in Brazil, running running Brazil, Lula, and then Dilma. And at that time, the connectivities within Latin America were getting stronger. Mercosur provided a good regional opportunity. Now that Malay is rejecting the links internally, the links with the left-wing governments in Chile and the center-left government of, of Brazil, uh, rejecting links to the BRICS and membership even, that means I'm quite convinced that um, it's going to see more and more acute tensions. And all the Malay comes to power in the same way Donald Trump did, in the same way right-wing populists have done in other countries, uh, maybe in, in Italy, maybe in the Netherlands uh, in recent weeks, uh, we will see um, a, a first optimism of uh, the, the core working class base, which have been confused and misled by these right-wing populists, and then alienation and a lack of support. The dilemma is that Donald Trump is fairly likely to take over the United States presidency unless he's deep in jail and cannot uh, get out and maybe uh, the number two candidate, who's currently Nikki Haley, a very, very conservative, uh, you know, BRICS hating uh, former governor of, of South Carolina and UN ambassador. And one of these two right wing uh, US populists, and it may be a Trump Haley ticket combined, Trump is hinting at that at the moment. That would then entail a new look at the way the world works, in which I think the rest of the world will have to finally put sanctions on the United States. One reason will be that Trump will walk out of the climate negotiations, and that will be reason enough to impose what are sometimes called a carbon border adjustment mechanism or a climate tax on the goods that come from the U.S. because they're being made with uh, under Trump, uh, a government that we saw from 2017 to 2020, uh, a government that doesn't care at all about the climate catastrophe. And I think that will be, let's say, for Argentina, whether it joins the BRICS or not, whether there's protests that um, uh, hinges uh, the Malay administration, whether there's an election that uh, unseats him because he won't succeed. Um, those will be the big questions for countries like uh, Argentina and its neighbors, but the world will also be watching what happens in November 2024 uh, with acute interest. Uh, in October, the BRICS will have met in Russia. Um, in uh, mid-November, we're going to see the G20 gather uh, in uh, Rio de Janeiro. We'll also see a big UN summit on the future in September. And I think the period between now and uh, September, October, when the uh, UN, the BRICS, and the G20, plus the US election, it's going to be a momentous period ahead. And I think the, the months leading up to it will have to mean a lot of mobilization by progressive, uh, creative bureaucrats, uh, if there are any in the Russian uh, government, but certainly in Russian society, in the rest of the BRICS societies, because at the top level, there are still too many conservatives who don't want to see de-dollarization, who don't want to see the BRICS challenge, the big multilateral institutions. We've seen that now for 15 years of the BRICS, an inability, an unwillingness to really challenge Western domination. And it's really time for that to change. Yeah, let's wrap up with your vision for the new BRICS members, what role they can play next year and what BRICS as an organization in its new expanded format will focus on the most. Well, the, the crucial question, in addition to an expansion, and there may be another five or six that can be attracted, and we would hope 
the biggest uh, country in Africa gets a chance uh, in terms of its economy and its population. Uh, Nigeria, maybe Senegal, uh, another is um, Algeria, another that's wanted to join is Morocco. There are plenty of others around the world, even uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Thailand, Indonesia is a logical addition, Mexico, Venezuela, Cuba is uh, desired, and so is Zimbabwe. Lots of uh, candidates, uh, maybe more than 40. But the main problem, uh, I still think, is whether if Russia's leadership is strong, if Vladimir Putin wins re-election decisively, as appears to be the case, and if there's some resolution to the special military operation, if there's some resolution in the Israeli genocide of uh, Gazans, if that can be halted, there's a, a let's say, a, a more um, a durable uh, way of looking at the future, the big threats being climate and economic volatility and more geopolitical tension between the West and China. So the BRICS societies, now in China, they, uh, let's say, persuaded uh, Xi Jinping to stop very extreme COVID lockdowns in late 2022 by mass uprisings. We've seen that uh, similarly in India, where mass uprisings stopped the imposition of, of agricultural policies and, and uh, land uh, legislation that was against the peasantry. In Brazil, continual protests against the Bolsonaro government, and uh, I would predict increasingly against Lula because he can't move as fast as he wants. South Africa is filled with social unrest. And I think in these ways, the core of the BRICS will come less steady in terms of the legitimacy of the leaders. And we'll see if the new BRICS members, uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, uh, of Saudi Arabia uh, in, in UAE, uh, Mohammed uh, bin Salman in Egypt, the al-Sisi government in Iran. Um, these are governments that have been repressive against their populations and maybe can be persuaded that if they take on this new added uh, role and if the Egyptian civil wars calm down, we might have a bloc that looks more stable and also maybe more democratic. And I think that will be good for the world because we definitely need the sort of pressures from below on uh, democracy and human rights and climate change and economic justice that um, sometimes do a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, damage control when, especially from Western economic dominance, the pressures, uh, the climate catastrophe, the financial turbulence, the inequality, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine controversy, all of those require uh, state society relations that um, are balanced by uh, social uh, protests from below that the leaders We'll have to listen to. Great. Professor Bond, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for your time. And yeah, it was a real pleasure speaking to you on these, well, complicated topics that you've really, the same Russia, chewed for our audience. Yeah, thanks a lot. Very good to be with you, Victor. We'll see you again. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. You too. Bye-bye. That's all the time we have for today on AfroVerdict. Thank you for your time with Professor Bond and myself. As we move into 2023, it's clear that these economies that we've spoken about will continue to face both challenges and opportunities. And the 2024 will be an unbelievably interesting year to observe. Make sure to check out Sputnik Africa's Telegram channel, TikTok account and other socials to remain updated on the most important global and local affairs. You can also listen to the AfroVerdict podcast on various platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Podcast Addict, CastBox, AfriPods and Pocket Cast. I look forward to continuing the coverage of African and global economics 
and bringing you more insights and analyses in the coming months. Until then, thank you for listening and happy holidays, everyone. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.